I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. This is Rabbi Linda Schreiner-Khan welcoming you to Tehillah Talks as we begin our second season, which is really exciting. And now we have new teens to be talking with, uh, and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Bernie Waldman. I'm Julian Reach. I'm Helena McHugh. And we're going to be talking today about what Judaism at least the very beginnings of Judaism, not the whole realm, because then we'd be here for days. But biblically, what imperative do we have to take care of the earth? And how do we respond to that? So in the beginning, in Genesis, we have this description of the six days of creation. And it says, as God said to to the people who he create, who God created. Here I give you all the plants that bear seeds that are upon the face of all the earth and all trees in which there is tree fruit that bears seeds. For you they shall be for eating and also for all the living things of the earth, for all the fowl of the heavens, for all that crawls upon the earth in which there is living being. All green plants for eating. It was so. Now God saw all that was made, and it was exceedingly good. There was setting, there was dawning, the sixth day. I have a quick response to that. Yes. Maybe a little bit off topic, but, but I was reading this book about how like agriculture came to be, and it's actually a much more complicated process than you would think. And apparently almonds are extremely poisonous. Unless, like, unless you've domesticated them. And the way that humans discovered edible al- almonds was every once in a while there'd be an almond tree with a rare mutation that made it not bitter. So they would know that one was good to eat, and then they domesticated it. So oh. I just thought of that, because like, well, God I, technically gave them some I, I will, I will, I will share with you, the very first time I did an adult Bible study class, and I spoke about this as our mythos, mm-hmm. I thought that the women I was teaching, it was all women, were going to have a revolution. <laughs> and this was not, it was not an orthodox setting. It was not a conservative setting. It was a reform setting. And I thought I could use the word mythos. Uh, but why? Wait, why were they? Because this is the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about how the Bible, the story that's in here is all about the beginnings of agriculture. Yeah. Really, well, that's what it's about. It, it, it talks about how agriculture works. But anyway, um, responses to that, that imperative that we begin with of... You well, is it imperative? Because it sounds kind of unconditional, a little. You well, know? it's like you're, you have responsibility. This is the, yeah. It's under your purview. Mm-hmm. I'm stoked. It's, it's a lot to begin with, just saying there are all these things. God found them exceedingly good, and here they are. And you have to take care of them. Right. It's the same, same thing as if as a parenting style, you might have difficulty with it of, you know, go to town now. Yeah. You don't just <laughs> There are like, no rules and yeah. regs. Just go you for it. You let like a teenager run wild. You know what I mean? Right. There are no, there, it's it's yeah. unboundaried. So 
just a few chapters later, you have the story of the flood of people being unboundaried, behaving in an unboundaried fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no, there's no um, how-to guide. You know what I mean? There's an imperative for sure, but there's no rules and regulations, which is kind of interesting because Judaism seems kind of heavy on the rules and regulations. Well, ultimately, there are rules about how we yeah. how we plant and how we sow and yeah. that we have to leave room and uh and then we get to noah right and after the flood god says you know i'm gonna establish a relationship with you with all living things that are with you fowl herd animals wildlife all of the things going out of the ark and i'm making you a promise all flesh shall never be cut off again by waters of the deluge Never again shall there be a deluge to bring the earth to ruin. That is the sign of the covenant which I set between you, me and you, and all living things that are with you and for ageless generations. And then we have the rainbow. So That's interesting. So, the, so it's, it's not saying you human beings aren't going to mess up. It's God saying, okay, I get it. Yeah, it is, it is very parent-like. It seems like the beginning God gives... All of this stuff, all of the animals, all of the wildlife and everything to humans, and then realizes, oh, wait, this is too much, too fast, didn't realize, and then kind of starts over with the flood, sets down some new rules. But on the other hand, it isn't really rules, it's more of like just an assurance that there'll never be like wholesale destruction, which... You could argue that we now know isn't true. Well, it because is. Humanity has taken that, but, but that promise of abundance. Right, but and it, kind it, of, it's not like we've been hit by a meteor that has destroyed the earth. Yeah, I just I mean, think, if you want to think like cosmic. Yeah, but that being true, I'm saying like if you are per se a believer of climate change, then that promise seems a little wonky because we when, we now know that. Like, he's saying that there'll never be the same kind of, like, apocalyptic destruction of life, right? And you can By me. By me. Yeah. By me. Oh, that's a good... By me. I ain't gonna do it. But God is all-powerful. It's... it's, Yes. But like a parent... It's still... God changes the rules a bit, maybe um, says, okay, that was too much, but now you still have responsibility. It seems like it's kind of happening all over again. I probably shouldn't say this, but I feel like God is a little bit of a bad parent because even though he's giving them a second chance, like, like I said, we, we know that there are limits to like the gifts that God gave us the responsibility. And we've, in a way, one could argue fallen short. Well, I mean, so that- all I'm saying is like God, although he gave him that for like that second chance, there wasn't, you know, like I said, a how-to guy. There wasn't. I will tell you, depending on who your teachers are studying Bible, they will say, God changes in the course of the Bible is, is not a yeah. static figure. Mm. And as any good parent learns on the job. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Which we don't, you know, we think of or the way God is presented in the yeah. world is as a static being, entity, yeah. spirit, whatever, but it's not static at all. Where if you're in relationship with anybody or anything, it's constantly on the move. It's not static. And God's not going to come and, like, give you a fine if you litter, you know? he's That's a little bit... No. We do have, like, that responsibility to act on our own without, you know, constant we, So we were on... Um, I'll probably talk about this more, but it's just the most fascinating things. We went with 
to um, Wisconsin with our friends, the Wongs. And uh, Joe's originally from Hong Kong. And he said, and he's reading, you know, we get all these tourist things. And it's the Sioux Ginseng Farm is in Wausau, Wisconsin. Now, and, and he says, it's famous. It's all over China. This is the most famous American ginseng that is exported. Let's see if we can get a tour. So we took a tour of this ginseng farm. And the important thing about that is that ginseng, once you plant it, first of all, it takes about five to six years. You what know is what it is? Yeah. It's an herb. <laughs> it's it's a- an herb. And it's very valued in China. And it's considered a healing herb. It's not one that, as Americans, we really are familiar with. I wouldn't associate that with Wisconsin. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. But it's it's like a thirty mile radius where the soil is perfect, and the t- and the climate is perfect mm. for this crop. And the thing that he so five to six years to mature. We happened to be there on a harvest day, which was really cool. And then. They lease the land because once you plant ginseng, you can't ever plant it again. Think about that. It must be very lucrative. It's Oh, yeah, yeah. it's lucrative. But because of what it does to the soil, even if you, it, it would be, it would eat at the plant that was there because of what it, if you planted yeah. another ginseng, that would attack its. Well, I, I do remember that there's a lot of, in the Torah about like, once you plant a crop rotating to not to. To right. the so, soil, which I thought was really interesting because it's like that's very practical advice. Like, so it's, it, this is a lot of sorry. Okay. This is a lot of what my Torah portion was about about rules about um, crops and when you plant, when you can't plant. Every seventh year, there's a jubilee year where you just leave the field to do whatever. If we were, it sounds a lot like that. You have to be so careful with certain things. If we were that careful with all crops, then yeah. The Dust Bowl might not have happened so much. You know, agriculture is in a really bad place right now. Yeah. Helena, any thoughts on And have you been to farms or not so much? Um, I have been to farms, but I haven't seen the planting process very thoroughly. So, so like I said, it's a 30-mile radius where this crop can be planted. And they can't plant the crop again. They, they lease the land where they're—and then it can— grow corn, it can grow alfalfa, it can grow anything else on that land once the ginseng is harvested. It's a little bit less exciting, though, just just regular corn. <laughs> right, yeah, right. It's just, it's, yeah, less exciting. But, so they're running out of land. Mm-hmm. By 2025, the farms in that 30-mile radius... Are going to be depleted. ...will be depleted. And now this particular farm, they're thinking about how are they going to... How do you keep this crop growing? There is a lesser version growing in Canada uh-huh. as a hybrid, but it's not not as treasured in China. And in Appalachia, there uh, they did a thing on um, people harvesting it in the forest, cool. right? So they're trying to figure out how do you get ahead of the the curve. Do we purposefully plant this in forest beds and t- keep track of it? That's a very human question. Like right. we need this. So. We need this, right? It's <laughs> we have valuable. To find we have to figure out how to do this. And but also, and and the conversation we had with our guide was so here's this very lucrative crop. You're exactly right. It's very lucrative. Forty dollars a pound. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
that's very, <laughs> very <laughs> I should get into this business. Very lucrative, right? He showed us the seeds yeah. are like ridiculously valuable. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to do clear cutting of forests. Yeah. How do you do this in a way that has responsibility, which I think goes back to that initial rainbow promise of, okay, guys, it's yours. Now you have to think about it. And the question is, as human beings, have we? I think, well, here's the thing. When I read that um, that book that mentioned, like, the formation of agriculture, that's such a, it's such a complex question, but it's really so instrumental in human history. Like, we love to think about human history as, you know, Julius Caesar went and fought this battle this year, but a lot of it is, or has been our interactions with nature, which I think is really interesting. Like, another example they gave was the people who, colonized Polynesia like thousands of years ago all came from one mother group and they had chickens pigs and dogs but there's 3,000 islands in Polynesia and all of the civilizations ended up differently and some of them you know would have a dog and a pig or a pig and a chicken or some or none of them or one of them and like it it all has to do with like for instance Hawaii is like huge like very fertile from what I can remember like Tonga was also a huge island and those became like empires but others they they abandoned agriculture or some uh, about every single variation in between but, so I think it's really interesting that it's actually our interactions with the environment that dictates so much and I well obviously we're at we've been at this point before where we're sort of thinking about what is our responsibility to the land when do you think we've been at that point Oh, I think in the 70s, it was, we were thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I think when people sort of woke up at what was going on in Hawaii with the pineapple plantations, they didn't... I'm not familiar. Well, they had pineapple plant, but they were yeah. not... If you only have one... It's that yeah. one crop thing. Yeah. You know? Here's this wonderful, mm-hmm. rich earth. But it's no longer like 100 people in a village who can get together and be like, all right, we're going to rotate. It's, it's global, like, economics, you know? And we have an encroaching desert. And also, like, you think about it. I mean, I know a lot of people my age are very concerned about the environment. Like, they'll post on their social medias. Like, recently I've seen that there's a forest fire in the Amazon. And I think it's also just, it's kind of a huge moral dilemma. Because you you may, like, be concerned with those topics. Like, we all should be. But you also will go to a store and buy, like, an avocado that came from Mexico. Like, on a car. Or, like, on a truck. Like, it's very hard to live, like, the lives that we live without having those, like, impacts and being aware of them. This is reminding me a lot. I don't know if any of you guys have watched the show The Good Place. Yes. But uh, the third season, second or third season, is all about the moral choices we make without even realizing. Like you're saying, buying an avocado. Yeah. Where did it come from? What pesticides were used? We have no idea. It came from far away. Planes are so inefficient. Yeah. They use, like, they release so much carbon dioxide. Anything transported on trucks or planes, it's just really bad for the environment. But in a lot of places, like New York City, it's really hard to get local food regularly yeah. that's, like, cheap enough for a lot of people to, to buy. Because we have food deserts in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't all just go and become organic farmers. Like, we would love to, but... You know, once you've already, you have your college debt and everything. But, but I, I, I would say, so it just so happens we were at the Botanical Gardens before we left. 
and we were there on tomato weekend. Mm-hmm. Have you been to the gardens? And they have the, the cultivated gardens at the botanical garden yeah. now. Have you seen them, Bernie? Years ago, not not recently. No, is that amazing? My favorite is the indoor, like all the indoor tropical. No, no, no. This is this yeah. is this is all this is all outdoor. Yeah. And there's a young woman showing us around, and I I got introduced to a fruit I'd never heard of before called ground tomatoes. You know what mm. they are? No. Ground uh, tomatoes. Ground tomatoes. They um, <laughs> or they can also be called ground cherries. Yeah. It looks like they're covered with um, a very thin paper. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Ground cherries, yeah. right? And you open it up, and it's it tastes like the, a mixture of a cherry and a very sweet wow. tomato. I really want to try this. And amazing! Cool. I have to buy them now because yeah. they're amazing. Yeah. But but this young woman, she said, "Oh yeah, well I have my degree. I'm from Michigan, and here I am in New York, teaching mm-hmm. agriculture to inner city school school yeah. children." That's really cool. You know, so I mean, part of it is not knowing. Yeah, but. I mean, that just reminds me, like, like I learned this a few years ago, but I was mind boggled when I realized tomatoes are not indigenous to anywhere except the Americas and like the same for potatoes. Like, it's just like, it's crazy how much human interaction has like shaped the environment, you know? Well, look what we've done to quinoa. Isn't that like, uses a lot of water. But the people... I, I will be honest. I don't know where exactly where it's from. Mm-hmm. The only thing I know is that wherever it's from, they don't have enough anymore because they're exporting so much oh, because yeah, we've discovered it. Yeah. 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 Right? So how to balance the way that we use food, have food. It's it's so difficult now with, like, airplanes and cars. You can get somewhere, get a fruit, and bring it back to where you're from. It used to be that to get to somewhere else with a totally different type of crop that was really difficult yeah. now that we have like global food industry we taste a fruit from africa and we're like ooh i want more of that yeah and more is expo- exported and imported into where you live and that doesn't really work in the long in the long term yeah it's difficult because it's not like you can have an overarching rule that says this food needs to stay in this place so you can't take too much from this place so it's kind of a public responsibility to sort of figure that out. To be interactive. And what it means is that we have to talk to each other. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. But on one level, it's like, I don't think it's necessarily terrible for, like, the example I gave, I don't think it's terrible to eat a crop that's not indigenous, but, like, to the area that you're from. But there are species that are, like, invasive. Like, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but apparently, like, feral hogs are spreading all across the U.S. and there's what? feral hogs, like wild pigs, basically. It's like a whole internet trend. Oh, the same thing with a- with Asian. It's a fish. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like you would. It's it's like on one level, like I agree, it's about our conscious decisions. But on another level, like you need some type of like higher power, maybe not God, but like a government department. Well, you know? once once you start traveling, things. I mean, that's sort of natural. Yeah. On some level. Yeah. But but seasonal fruit, we get certain fruits all year long. Because you and, want it all year long. Right, but... The, if what we the, didn't know we could have it all year long. The thing what I love about summer is you really only get good cherries in the summer. Right. Yeah. It really is a seasonal fruit. Yeah. yeah. And apples are really in the fall. And yes, you can buy them, but you, why would you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I... That, 
you know, I've always, like, kind of been scared of climate change, I guess. Like, even when I was younger, I read somewhere that, like, every year, sorry, like, rain or trees that, like, the size of the state of Virginia or West Virginia, I forget, are being, like, used for office paper. And I just, like, I... I sat up all night thinking about that and being like, wow, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? And I think when um, Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Accords, like, I kind of had that feeling of hopelessness all over again because it, it really is a crisis, at least in my opinion. Oh, it is like, a crisis. Because it's not it's not just, like, the little ways that it will affect us, but it's, like, I think once it reaches a tipping point, it's going to become, like, on. You know, but there's it, no going back at some point. So, you have to um, do something on a global scale. Right, right. I mean, it's that's why agronomy is a hot field now. What is that? Studying, it's how to plant and how yeah. to, how you know, how to create new crops and mm. and how to create crops in places where there's not a lot of water and how do you get water to those places as things are changing really rapidly, yeah. and it's it's hard for people of a, of a region to switch from something that they've known to something that's brand new, even though the new thing may be, have some life-sustaining influences on them, right? I have one last thing, and then I'll let, you know, Bernie and Hannah, like, take over, but I've been reading a book about the second war between Carthage and Rome, and I noticed, like, on every single page, they're like, okay, then they had to find water. Like, then they had to go find food. Like, there was no you know, like, freeze-dried, whatever. And I think in a way, like, in the last, you know, maybe 400, 500 years, we've, like, gradually lost contact with our dependence on the environment. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in the past, it used to, you used, most people were farmers, you know? Most people were directly there trying to... Do you know why you have a summer vacation? Does anybody know why they have... So you can help out with the agriculture. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It's the only reason you have a summer... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Right? That's the only reason. So you can help with a harvest. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> you know? And and the and the what we grow in this country feeds so much of the world, mm. and we don't really think about it. So, what do you think? What do you think God's intention was when He gave us responsibility? Like, I would argue that we've kind of failed to live up to that response. I don't well, know if you guys I, would agree, but like, what's your response to that? I guess. My response is, we have it also in Kedoshim, the whole thing of, you know, the gleaning, right? Don't harvest the corners of your field. Yeah. Don't harvest all your vines. The sense that uh, food is a communal product, uh, which we don't really, we've gotten pretty distant from that. I mean, I, it's why I love the architectural visions of New York with new buildings that have uh you know, like tiered, yeah, that have gardens, <laughs> right? Really have you cool. have you seen those? <laughs> yeah, that, I've seen like those renderings. I'm like, yeah. oh, that would be so cool. I don't know. I think, in a way, what you're saying is a little like communistic, social. You know, it's like very radical, actually, because the monetization of of commodities is what makes this whole world kind of rotate in a lot of senses. You could, you know, you could argue like even. The example I gave, even back in ancient times, it was a commodity. Like, you pay people in wheat. So, w- changing that is, like, such a revolutionary step. It's still about... But here's this ginseng farmer making a lot of money on the... Yeah. Realizing there could be an end 
to this trail. Therefore, I have to think outside the box. Therefore, I might need to partner with other people. Therefore, I need to communicate, right? I still want to make my money. It's not that Mm -hmm. I stopped wanting to make my money. But you have to think. But I have to think about it in a different way. And I think, unfortunately... And Helena, you know, jump in any time. Unfortunately, uh, there's a saying I grew up with in German, necessity makes the man. We innovate best when the knife is at our throat. And that's just not always the best. I mean, the innovation may be great, but it's sort of coming late in the day. I think that's what's in the process of happening right now. I mean, so many people aren't aware of the problems with climate change and even the people that are say there's time or I don't want to be the first one to do it or I don't want to spend my money on solar panels or I don't want to buy you know ten dollars extra of food to get it local there always has to be someone to do it first unless it's a really tired situation and governments step in and it's enforced and everyone has to do it yeah I mean I think this this makes me think of the Green New Deal because um, in my current events class last year we like read it and at first like it was it, it's very like you know radical like not radical but it's like extreme like it would it would it's pretty much taking on like all of America's problems at once and beating them which is like to me like kind of everything that I like to think I like wouldn't buy into but at the same time I was thinking about it and I was like we do kind of need these. We need somebody to say something. We need somebody to write up some plan, you know. So, but we're but food is a basic. Yeah, well, water too. Water. Right, water, food. You can't have food without water. Right, but those two things, almost more than anything else, if we can't figure out how to do that, I think, frankly, when I think about climate change, I know that a lot of this life that we're living right now is going to have to go out the window to some extent. To some extent, like. I just think realistically thinking about it, like there's going to be a huge increase on taxes, you know, probably at some point. Yeah, I think we're like maybe we can all ride bicycles to work, but like we have to think about what the sacrifices are going to entail for us, because I feel very guilty of like I like to think I'm concerned about it, but I also eat meat. And that's probably not a good thing in the long run. So I'm complaining. Basically, I'm complaining about climate change now, but tomorrow I'd be, I might be claiming about whatever the cost there was is of fixing it. An article in the Times about these former vegans who are now getting into the butcher business <laughs> because they want to do it in a way that is more sustainable and and get meat from not from these cattle feet. You know this. So it's not about not eating meat. It's about eating less meat. Yeah. It's about how you produce the meat. It's well, so I think I think more people are thinking about this. Not probably not enough. Yeah, I was thinking like to go off of that. Like I was thinking about how um, vegan or vegetarian people eat a lot of soy, but that actually requires a huge amount of water. So uh, we were, this also happened in my current events class. But I was like, you know, we we kind of criticize like. Monsanto, like, who come up with the, you know, genetically modified crops or, like, the chicken factories. But maybe that, in a sense, is the most economical way to feed people. I'm not saying it is, but that could be a possibility. So it's not as simple as, you know, just eating something that doesn't require suffering of some kind, you know? It, it's not necessarily just about economics, though. I don't think we can solely look at that. If we look at, I mean, 
a chicken farm just yeah. by itself opens up so many other ethical problems besides yeah. whether it's um, economic or efficient or feeds a lot of people. I mean, we can do... Like, cows eat tons of corn, right? We grow corn that's specifically yeah. bad <laughs> and cheap to make, to give to cows. Right. I've, I've um, read an article, watched a video that if we replace the corn that we're growing to feed the cows and we replace the corn with beans and just ate the beans and cut out the cows, it would be a ton more efficient. A lot more people would get fed and it would be much better for the environment. Yeah. But I think I would get sick of beans at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And but, but, but you could still have cow eating co- clover. Yeah. You could still, there's still, yeah, create, I know. you know what I mean? I know. There's ways to do that, this. I'm just saying that like on one level, I think humans are like, the average human confronted with their ethical choices is pretty like we'll think about it. But it's it, when it becomes like companies and da 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 that. that and the, is but the less other clear. piece of this whole thing that I saw again because it was spending this time in Wisconsin, who knew, um, is how hard the work is. This is most yeah. Americans don't want to do this work. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that it's been so mechanized because they don't have people who are willing to care for the land and see that as a responsibility so they have foreign workers. Now, in Wisconsin, you have people, the Hmong people, mm-hmm. who are from Cambodia and Laos, mm-hmm. who came after the Vietnam War, and they're still farmers. They're the workers. Right? That, and they work in family units. And they're also in that part of the country. There also are Amish and Mennonites who are also close to the land. So what you have is a lot of fresh produce from people who have deep okay. respect for the land in a way that white Americans, I'm going to say it that way, have are further from it. They may own the yeah. farm. But they're not necessarily but working the farming, land. Farming, like in American history, has always been very precarious. It's always been they're the first. Biblically, it's very precarious. Yeah, but and even today, like we see that farmers are being hit by tariffs that the tariff conflict that Trump has kind of initiated, and they still support Trump. And I think you kind of have to ask yourself, like, what what must that life be like? You know, to be the like such a small vestige of what was such a huge occupation and. You know, like, they, they basically rely on, like, government subsidies. Like, as some people have done the math, and, like, you can make more money just taking the subsidy than planting the crop. So, you know, it's it's hard. And here we sit in New York, and we go to the supermarket. Yeah, it's fun. Do you, so you both have houses. Do you grow anything? What do you grow in the backyard? My mom <laughs> grows tomatoes and basil. We used to do tomatoes, but we have, um, like, a little herb garden for herbs. Yeah. But, um... We always talk about, like, again, we always talk about, never actually get around to it or actually seriously think about it, but we always talk about, um, like, making a garden or something in the backyard instead of a, a field because we don't really use it anymore. Not a field, but a little yard. Yeah. Do you have a terrace? We don't have a terrace, so. We don't have a terrace either, but we talk about plant, you know, having herbs in the window. But, I, I you know, it's, what what small things can we do? How do how do we do it? And even just changing the way we think about it, I think, makes a difference. Yeah. Well, in a way, that's kind of what I'm arguing, that, like, this new awareness is going to force the powers that be to do something greater than just us, like, 
you know, basically feeling guilty, but in a way being unable to make big change. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that us as individuals can't do that. I'm just saying like a lot of it is just, it's just like kind of impossible. You know what I mean? It's kind of impossible to like live a, a really environmentally sustainable life without like a government organization or something of the With some stuff. some some yeah. organ, organizing principle around yeah. it. You can make a little bit of change, but that's which what I'm is which like, is interesting. Going back to Bernie's tour portion, right? There's an organizing principle in there that you should rotate the land, mm. and it's from above. It's it's the society saying, yeah. You cannot have the same. If only God could have created an international investigative, <laughs> you know, department. It's a very localized yeah. process. Also, um, you remind me about the part where, like, each family has the land, and after however many le- years it is, they can buy other people's land or, like, kind of rent it. But after a certain time, everyone goes back to their land. So that kind of keeps the connection. Like you said, we don't really have a connection to our land or, or yep. anything like that where we get our food from the supermarket, not from the farm. Mm-hmm. That, that remind, This is kind of like completely off topic, but I find it interesting. But um, it reminds me of me and my dad were talking about like his family history and they're Scottish. And at one point in time, they were just like cleared off the land that they'd occupied. Like that had always been theirs, you know? They didn't, basically, they didn't own the land. They just had always worked it. And it technically belonged to some rich guy. And basically, they were cleared off the land. And that's how my family got to be in London instead of, like, in the Scottish Highlands or whatever, you know? So it's, like, it's interesting because over time, like, those big landholders have always won out. And, yeah. With that story, I think it's also important to note that, like, the people that live here are very the vast majority are not native to this area yeah the the native people here were pushed off pushed west and there's i mean we don't think about that either new york city i mean manhattan manhattan it used to be right yeah (laughs) purchased for what (laughs) it also used to be forest which yeah i think about a lot like i'm on the train it's like everything is concrete and i'm just like wow this was a forest (laughs) at one point well going or going to central park yeah. Mm-hmm. And seeing those out the outcropping, mm-hmm. right? Uh and think imagining sheep grazing in Central Park, which actually did happen. Yeah. Well the Bronx was literally all farmland all until farmland. not done. Right. Yeah. So it, but the the question for us is what do we do about it and what's our responsibility and, and well it and is it good enough to do small things? That's the other question I have for you. I think it's the right sense. Like, I think doing the small things is as important as doing the big things. I'm just making the point that, like, at some point, it's going to need to be a bigger entity than us. I'm saying the more people that, like, plant the tomatoes and express concern and whatever is going to probably hopefully culminate in some larger action. And so I think it's, it's crucial, but it's not the final step. I think it needs to start from somewhere, whether it's, like, the new administration or it's like a bunch of small organizations, I think it should just start and either, and I think that even um, a small effort is. I have to say that my consciousness has shifted because we started composting in this building. So we have the compost container on the counter and all foods, you know, all food waste goes in there and it's reduced the amount of garbage we create. Yeah. I remember when that became a thing. Or when my family started doing that. 
It's satisfying. I don't know. So when we met this this farmer in Wisconsin, they are, and not that many people know, so I told our friends who live in Wisconsin, they also are a recycling site. Oh, cool. And a composting because they, because of the kind of crop they have, um, it's a root. As he said, it's a root. Uh, it's a root. So the top part is essentially garbage. You can't do anything with it. So what do you do with all these grains? You compost, right? So, and that becomes another kind of business. But I think it's only when you have scarcity that you begin to value every part of a process. Yeah, totally. And I'm not sure we, we do, really. For most processes, we don't really think about the whole thing. Like, just getting food to your table. I don't think most people would think about where it came from, how it got to your supermarket, going to your supermarket, buying it. Sometimes that's a luxury, too. Like, I think all of us in this room are fortunate enough to, like potentially have the option of buying food that may be better for the earth but like we mentioned like the food deserts you know you there's no way for you to go and make that trip and come back and still get to work you know so well, that's why that's why i say in, that you but, need you need but a even, power. even in this even in this neighborhood even in this neighborhood the vegetables that are sold in the local supermarket I wouldn't say subpar, <laughs> but, but maybe they're par, right? Yeah. And you have to look elsewhere if you want to get good vegetables and fruit. Mm-hmm. It's not... Farmer's market, I guess. Farmer's market, which is important. But and I, I don't know. I, I, you know. I would love to see somebody starting a real vegetable garden. Yeah. That's another thing, like starting gardens on, on green roofs on top of buildings would just help so much in other ways too, like runoff, um, stopping water from going into sewers and flooding the <laughs> sewer system, uh, and also just tons of crops for people. Here in our story, we have an event that happens that appears to happen quickly, but nobody's paying attention. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the difficulty... What do you mean by that? Well, there's this crazy thing about the story of Noah. Here's this guy. Building this thing in his backyard. Now, he doesn't ask why. That's one problem. But the other problem is nobody comes around and says, Hey, Noah, what you doing? Yeah. It's not going to be like a giant flood or anything. (laughs) I mean, think about that for fun. But think about how many people we have nowadays who, like, I don't want to say Noah is a little, like, out there, you know, but how many people are preparing for the apocalypse now? Like it's a huge thing. But but they're so, but what they're doing. You have to wonder doing, how many people. There what they're were doing also is they're boats. they're getting safe rooms. <laughs> they're taking care of their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But I know. I'm just saying. Like, I bet they all walked down the street and were like, "That guy's crazy." <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? But what can we? So part of I I get back to something I think about a lot is how do you communicate with others. That you're not in this by yourself. That you know, it's like um, there's strands that connect us across the across the world. Mm-hmm. And how do we create those ties so that we realize that we're all in this together? And I think with mm-hmm. with technology, I mean, what comes across my newsfeed certainly tells me that we're all connected. When I hear about you know something's melting in another part of the world, or an iceberg falls yeah. and a oh. kayak. Just, you know, oh my God. <laughs> barely makes it. I don't know. I think 
the pessimist in me wants to say that the necessity will create the sense of urgency, but I think that really needs to be like cold, hard facts that, you know, like, I think there needs to be cold, hard, like analysis of the situation before people really put aside their, and, their feelings. You know? And part of it is also, we don't worry as much about people who don't look like ourselves. What, so what do you mean so by that? So what I mean is that here in, in Africa, forget about what's going on in, in Central America, but in Africa, we have an encroaching desert. Yeah. And people are on the move because they don't have enough to eat. And it creates conflict. And it creates conflict. How often do you hear about that in your news feed? Very little. So I may I know I feel like I burden here's our first episode and I burdened you with okay guys we're all responsible for this but I guess the more importantly is how do we think about these things and can we shift the way we think about them so that when an opportunity arises maybe maybe we can do something yeah. about it Well I think we touched on this earlier um but I think making money like maybe making money the second or third priority, you know, not necessarily the first priority at all times. Like it stops us from blocking that moral like prerogative. You know what I mean? I'm going to ask each of you to sort of sum up what you think about this conversation. Uh, Bernie, if you want to go first. Uh, well, what we've been talking about is such a, a difficult problem to solve because we are, humans are so different on the outside and so similar on the inside we all want such similar things, but we think, oh, that guy just wants to keep farming on his farm and it's okay, I'll build my safe room and I'll be safe when the apocalypse comes, you know. It's so hard to, like you said, communicate between people that we're all in this together. We all live on the same earth. It's not separate. We don't have, like, separate countries. People don't own separate pieces of land. We all need to work together towards one goal. And we're in a pretty important place in that in moving towards that goal i remember learning about in ninth grade some ancient cultures that when they got something when they got food it was all for the community everything was just for the community and we did this simulation that we were actually we were pretending to be um like different different members of the community and then when we were when we faced obstacles and we all had to we all started to um just use things for our own or for ourselves it started to become more about the individual not the community and that's when it started to go downhill and so i think that now we need to f- still focus on community julian i think i kind of <laughs> summed it up a little bit but i think we have i think bernie made a great point actually about um how like the idea of like separate separate borders and like owning things and kind of gets in the way of us working towards this goal in a lot of senses. And I think we have to really confront those things as constructs and not like not the only way of doing things. You know what I mean? So. Well, thank you all. This has been a good conversation and uh, invite you to tune in next time to Tehillah Talks. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehillah Talks. For more information about Tehillah, go to congregationtehillah.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.